it's not just about going out and doing impact investing and social entrepreneurship and let's just do more, more, more. There's a bunch of knowledge we don't have that we need to have to change the way we do our economy, the way that we do policy and, and that kind of thing. Purpose Tea Podcast, speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders, people who are making the world a better place. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. Everyone, welcome to Purposey with Jamie Newth, founder of Soul Capital. An academic and an entrepreneur, Jamie is one of the key exponents of impact investing in New Zealand. Different to philanthropy where donors give money to do good with no expectations around financial return, impact investing combines financial returns with expectations around positive impact. Whether that is the environment or society, in New Zealand, impact investing is a relatively new phenomenon small marketplace, you will hear how Jamie has literally put his house on the line to help grow this marketplace, um, to set up his first fund and help prove the concept. Enjoy this episode. I certainly did. And don't forget to share with friends and family. Thank you. Jamie Newth, welcome to Purposely Podcast. Thank you, Mark Longbottom. It's a pleasure to be here. You are the founder and CEO of Soul Capital. What's its mission and purpose? Well, Soul Capital exists to act at a, we like to say, at a systems level or thinking it in the big picture about trying to contribute to an economy that is more sustainable and inclusive. Um, so thinking about what are the, um, the institutions and the norms and the systems that have led us to a place where our economy doesn't work for everyone, doesn't work fairly or equally, and um, at a systemic level um, degrades the environment and is taking us beyond the, you know, what our planet can endure in a way which I think most of your listeners can probably relate to. Um, and so that's the, the overarching mission or purpose. And then when you, we have that as a starting point that leaves you with quite a range of things, activities, strategies that you can deploy to, to try and achieve that, um, which can range from um, impact investment fund management, which is one of the things we do, through to new knowledge through uh, research and through convening conversations um, to disseminate knowledge and to generally overall agitate an ecosystem so that we change what's normal. So social impact investing is an overarching term and, and one of the first in New Zealand? Yeah, that's right. So, um, and this is a little bit about me as a founder, I guess, and that, you know, which I guess you, you may dive into, but I found that I from a career perspective, I knew that I um, wanted to, you know, lead my own venture, ventures, um, or to at least be self-employed. And um, through a, a series of career kind of decisions and, and things that I did, uh, led me to the point where I realized that I wanted to, you know, dedicate my energy to that that mission I mentioned. But one of the things that was missing in terms of having a sustainable and inclusive ecosystem, business ecosystem was the aligned capital to enable entrepreneurs and innovators to take those are the the people and the projects that will take our economy to that more sustainable and inclusive place and what was very clearly lacking particularly in new zealand um, was that aligned capital capital which is aligned to um, their social and environmental agenda while still being commercial in nature and that type of capital we can we call impact investing um there's lots of different you know assets and, and types of impact investment but um that initial focus was on impact venture capital i guess you would call it and yeah so um one of the first in new zealand when i um first started 
try, yeah, agitating and trying to um, do what became Soul Capital. I couldn't. I struggled to find people that knew what I was talking about, and a lot of people find it uh, heretical um, to try and um, blend the machinery and the the work of investment with that of trying to achieve social and environmental impact simultaneously. Just touching on that in terms of where that fits and matches up. So it's it's closer to philanthropy than than investment for financial return. So. Um, it's this idea that you get a, a social return with a financial return together, potentially, and there's different variations of that. But it's closer to philanthropy, would you say? Sometimes debatable. It's certainly in the middle. It's between the two. And so, if you if you ever if you Google impact investment, just like if you Google social enterprise or social entrepreneurship, you'll find a spectrum. And the interesting stuff in the middle of that spectrum between traditional investment and philanthropy is. Um, flavors of responsible investment, sustainable investment, and impact investment. So yes, um, it's a, it's a good point, Mark. Let's clarify what we're talking about here. It is financial investment for financial return alongside a social and environmental impact, and that you know you have to do that um, intentionally. It should be done in a way which is additive to what would have happened anyway if you you know didn't invest, um, and the, those outcomes that you're investing for the social and environmental should be. Yeah, demonstrable, and you should have an intent to try and measure those things to have integrity. Yeah. So you know that's that's a um, relatively well accepted definition, but we open up that um, black box, and there's a lot of different flavors in there. And so there's various different investment instruments from you know the early stage venture capital kind of thing that I was talking through, through to housing loans and everything in between. So to your point, you know, is it closer to um, philanthropy and investment? It depends, and it's. That's a strategic decision, really, from the investor as to um, whether they want to be more finance first. So, yes, they want to have an impact, but with no kind of concessions to their financial return through to, no, actually, we want to really prioritize the impact. The financial returns um, can be secondary. So, it, it can be a bit of a misnomer that impact investing is, by definition, lower financial return. That isn't the case, except where it is. And where it is, that's intentional because you need to have a lower financial return to enable that impact. So it actually covers a really broad range of investment strategies. And I want to really get into your founder story of Cell Capital. But before we do that, just want to dive back into your career so and your academic career. So off to uni to do a degree, anticipated you'd become an academic or not like that at all? Not like that at all. No, I went to uh, university and did um, the ubiquitous Bachelor of Commerce that uh, many, many Zealanders do. And the only thing I really knew through that degree it was, like I was saying before, that I wanted to probably not get a traditional job per se and be a quote-unquote entrepreneur because um, what I knew about it and what I'd studied and that kind of thing kind of resonated, but had the misfortune of not really having any useful specific skills, which has led me to become very much a, a generalist. But yes, an undergraduate degree and then a master's degree where my research focused on, on entrepreneurship. Had you shown signs... Early in earlier in life, like when you're a, uh, a sort of younger kid or teenager, um, that you had a sort of passion for being an entrepreneur, or not? I, that's a good question. I can't recall any of those anecdotes of of you know selling lemonade on the corner, kind of uh, that you that you hear, or doing anything you can to kind of to exercise that um, that entrepreneurial muscle. I mean, I was where all my passion really was as a young person was with sport. Um, um, in particular cricket. So that was where um, any extra energy um, really went. But it wasn't until I started you know, actually getting educated and learning how the world works that I, this thing, entrepreneurship and innovation, really kind of resonated. And it's uh, once you kind of get that, that bug, 
it's a it's a difficult thing to put down. And is it partially around desire to be in charge of your own destination? Do you remember that being a driver early on in your life? I think there's there's certainly an element of that of of being able to control what you do with your life. Yes, and that was something that that stuck out from an early age. That it wasn't necessarily about profile or wealth or egoistic kind of things, but it was wanting to have control over what I did with my life. And that's a double edged sword, by the way. When you get into the the research of entrepreneurship, it's not all not all roses about being able to con- control what you do with your time. There's there's massive downsides as well. So yes, it was, it was certainly a desire to um, control my own destiny, so to speak, and that in many respects would probably make me a, a pretty mediocre employee or problematic employee, but does give you the drive to um, to do that hard mahi when it comes to um, doing your own thing, launching your own venture. Yeah. And so found yourself diving deep into the topic and, and the theory. And, um, yeah, tell us about that period of your life, finding that the information came quite naturally to you, the, the thinking behind it made sense. Yeah, and I think it's partly because I've, you know, kept a foot in both in academia and um, as a practitioner in industry throughout from postgrad through to now. Yeah, going deep into, um, firstly, what makes an entrepreneurial team in particular so powerful and how do you um, harness the, the potential of multiple entrepreneurs working together and about what entrepreneurs then achieve in society in aggregate, what difference that they, they make and what they they can make. And that really is the leaping off point to my PhD in social entrepreneurship and then Soul Capital as a venture, uh, albeit being a, a financial one, because you kind of realize what entrepreneurs are trying to achieve or achieve in aggregate is change. There's lots of definitions about what entrepreneurship is and what it isn't and whether they're born and whether they're made and whether you can learn it and all that kind of thing. But the thing for me is that if you create and um, pursue new opportunities, you change things. And what became really apparent to me is I was really interested in change that is not just economic, not just growth. It's change with a purpose. It's change with a with a direction. Yeah. And you can see there the power, potential power of, of social entrepreneurship. We start bringing that purpose into our innovation entrepreneurship at a systemically or at a economy level, society level. That's what going to be one of the the key drivers to a uh, an economy that we can actually be a bit more proud of than what we've got at the moment. What was the sort of motivation? Like, what were you seeing around you? What examples were there? Negative examples that made you think there's another way. There's another way to do capitalism that motivated you to take your your um, research in this direction. Once you start thinking, and this is, I guess, an academic training or an academic kind of discipline, is you start thinking about why. Why do we get these outcomes in the aggregate at the macro level? Why? And you dig into, uh, okay, we're not just a a population of terrible primates. Everyone's doing what they think is right and doing the best that they can, generally. And you understand, well, why are those the incentives and the motivations we have? And you say, well, actually, this is the way we're getting exactly what we designed for. And you can, this can get very boring and very academic pretty quickly, but there's these institutional logics which are driving behavior. And so it wasn't a particular entrepreneur or a particular innovation or a particular venture that said, hey, that's what I want to do. Um, there are many, because lots of inspirational um, stories of that kind. But it was, and the reason why I ended up on the investment side of the table, despite not having the appropriate skills to do that at the time, was because we actually need to do this not just at a, um, a particular innovation level or a particular venture or product 
um, we need to change what's normal in terms of the way that we do um, investment, the way that we do enterprise, which is a pretty grand kind of sentiment. But that was the realization coming from a scholarly perspective that actually the systems we've got, which take our economy where it's gone, reinforce what's normal. And that's why it's so hard to change and why um, it can be so difficult to do entrepreneurship in general, social entrepreneurship is even more difficult because you're you're violating multiple kind of norms. Um, and then to try and do the, the capital side of things as well, it's um, perhaps even more entrenched. So Salt Capital was formed in 2014. Tell us about the build up to that and, and that sort of a moment where you, you know, plunged into it and, and made it happen. This was during my PhD. So I was during that time, I was um, doing some advisory consulting work for a large uh, international NGO, poverty alleviation development NGO. And through that exposure to um, international development world and um, working um, in extreme poverty, and my job there was to, I was charged with thinking about alternative business models to um, enable greater impact. And that's where I realized that things like social enterprise, social entrepreneurship, although I had that background in it, so it was relatively obvious, had real potential in that context. And that started the conversation that was um, Soul Capital with um, a bunch of people that are far smarter than than I, but also some experiences in the field, so to speak, you know, um, meeting with people in developing country contexts, some uh, child soldiers and uh, refugees in Rwanda and so on, and, and them telling their story very bravely and then saying, well, you know, it's my obligation to do what I can. You know, you've done so much for yourself to to carve this amazing life after that start in life. The least that we can do is to put our um, energy and time um, into doing the best that we can for people like yourself and others. And so, you know, that's really just more kind of background motivation. But Soul Capital was the, was the conversation. And then post-PhD, it was time to really dive into it and stop treating it as a side project or a side hustle as it's called um, these days um, and not be that advisor consultant to lead it as an entrepreneur and that's where the the more proper entrepreneurial story of, of me and soul capital really begins i think was always called called soul capital i love the name yes it has always been um, called soul capital um with all its uh, multivariate implied meanings and that people see in that and what it means for different people but it kind of says yes it is capital not just all financial capital, though, but it's, it's got that deeper kind of purpose behind it. Um, so we, we kind of put that out there loud and proud that this is what we're about. But yeah, so that that when I started really um, entrepreneuring it properly was to really focus on the New Zealand ecosystem after having an international focus because we really, really needed it. Like I said, I was trying to um, raise capital and people didn't really know what I was talking about and nobody was really doing it in New Zealand. So it was a bit of a challenge, but it was about just trying to create an entrepreneurial ecosystem um, in New Zealand that had had a direction, had purpose, um, and that the social entrepreneurs in, in New Zealand could access the capital that was aligned to what they were trying to achieve, rather than trying to twist it to fit a VC or trying to twist it to be appropriate just to philanthropic capital. You need that that you know investment capital with purpose. So I imagine you with the slide deck, you've made the decision to uh, you know double down on this and really um, take it seriously and grow it. Um, you had quite a lot of learning to do. We do look back and think I was quite green. Um, and it was some key people who helped you along the way at that point. Absolutely. Um, very green. Um, and like many entrepreneurs, um, not don't didn't know what I didn't know. Actually, that's not true. 
because of my bracket, I knew I'd got used to um, knowing what I don't know, because that's one of the curses of being an academic, um, is it's just a pursuit of realizing how little you know in the scheme of things. But yes, very naive, um, and kind of an idea that I didn't really know what shape it had before it coalesced into, okay, we want to mobilize capital to connect it with um, social entrepreneurs that can take multiple forms. We thought the best form, probably a fund, and that becomes challenging because you need to go and raise that fund and people didn't really know what I was talking about. I had no credibility per se. And yeah, um, some key people there, um, Dave Curtis, um, who's one of my um, co-founders and director um, based in Melbourne that I'd met um, in those early days, was instrumental. And, and then Deb Shepard, who was, you know, supervised my master's thesis and so on, joined the team. So those those people were instrumental, but also taking that entrepreneurial approach to, to doing something, which is, by the way, kind of unusual when it comes to creating a financial management entity, an impact fund, you know, entrepreneurs are generally leading a venture rather than being the investor. So it's it's doubly difficult to get something like that up because you're asking people to put their capital at risk um, in something that hasn't, doesn't have a track record. And is this where the story gets really interesting? Is this where you realise that actually you needed to um, be that sort of lead funder? Like you needed to put your own money in? Yeah. Was that always the plan? <laughs> I think it is, I can't remember whether it was always the plan, but there was certainly a realization that, and this is not an unusual founder's story, but realization that if people were going to put their, trust me with their capital to do this thing, which hasn't been done yet um, in New Zealand, and that they, as much as they may be inspired by the intent of, you know, these um, ventures and entrepreneurs that will deliver social environmental impact and that kind of thing, they needed to one of the, I guess, the most powerful way which they could have some faith is that if, you know, if I did, if I did what I did, which is to borrow money against my house to um, fund the, to put the first capital into the fund, was that hard to do? Um, in a practical sense, it is a bold. It's a very risky thing to do. Venture capital is extremely risky in at the best of times, let alone when there isn't a track record um, and it, into a sector that doesn't exist, like I was doing. You need to have some interesting conversations with the bank um, and potentially with your family and so on. So yeah, it, um, you know, it was. It's a crazy thing to do in hindsight, in many respects. But I had spent so much time and gone through so much to try and get it to that point where it could be something that I would preferred the pain of that that would have been a very, very significant financial loss as to not have even not have ever given it a crack. Yeah. And why at what at what age were you at this point? And and how did it feel big because you had people staring at you going, Hey, wait a second, this is our house. Our life's gonna be difficult if you like was it was it did you have the sort of age on your side that I you know? Um yeah, this was um yeah, I wasn't how old was I? This would have been at around the age of yeah, early thirties. And so it um it wasn't like you're in a position where, um, which is the case for many um, young entrepreneurs early out of uni, where it's a great time to take risks because you haven't kind of loaded yourself up with um, with the consequences of putting your family out on the street or and that kind of thing, um, and you can sacrifice the income and so on. the The thing with my journey, though, Mark, was that because I'd been so dedicated to this kind of mission, I guess you could say of doing a PhD on social entrepreneurship and getting, you know, trying to get as knowledgeable as possible and then doing something which was a startup without income and that kind of thing. It was, um, I was privileged enough to, you know, own a home to then to take this loan out. But 
not in the position where I was comfortable, let's say. So it would have been a pretty awkward um, outcome if things had gone um, terribly wrong. It's not to say it's gone, yeah, I've proven the point and it's been wildly successful. That's going to depend on the companies and the fund, but it's um, very, very, it's enabled, I guess what it has done is is built a, help me build a, an enterprise which has the credibility that can now go on and do become something at scale such that that was a sensible investment to make. Yeah, because, you know, you're at, a, at an age where you've got responsibility. It's not extra money, you know, like you potentially lose your house if it doesn't work. In your words, you know, it's at that proof of concept phase. And then on top of that, it's actually on the venture side, right? So these are startups. And so, you know, there's no guarantee that they will um, be successful. Did you lay awake at night making that decision? Or did you just, like you said, all of that work that you'd done, it just felt like destiny. And and actually the disappointment you knew you would have if you didn't do it was was just, you know, enabled you to, to stay calm. Yes. And that, well, that's certainly the story I tell myself um, in that that would be a preferable outcome than to have died wondering. I'd rather have lost that money. Um, don't know if I would have lost the house, but it could have been awkward. And I'd rather have that than to wonder, you know, what if I had um, actually given it a proper crack? And the other thing it does is when I was talking to potential investors and, and they were high net worth or certainly in a better position to be investing than me or their institutions could say, well, look, my capital's in this. Um, I can afford it to, afford to lose it far less, far less than you. And that gave them the confidence that, you know, I was going to work my ass off to, to manage it well, to deliver the impact outcomes, yes, but also that, you know, I had real um, real skin in the game as well. So I think you, um, lots of founders face a point like this, whether it is leaving their job with a stable income or whether it is saying no to a job or whether it's borrowing against their house or something similar. There is that point. There are points like that where you say, well, for whatever you, whatever your motivation is, you're going to have to take that risk. Otherwise, um, everyone would be doing it. And so you, you create the fund, others others join you. And is it, can you talk about the size of it and a bit about what you did then and, and how you how went about that process to find the appropriate investments? Sure. So this is the, um, the RFE fund, we called it. And it's like I was saying before, it was, you know, there wasn't much going on in New Zealand in terms of, of impact investing and this kind of capital. So we really, the I couldn't do anything sensible. That was that was obvious. You couldn't write, write, um, raise a sensible sized fund and manage it and charge management fees and, and that kind of thing. If you were going to at that time, um, you were going to have to be pretty commercial such that it probably wasn't going to be genuine impact investing. So what we set out to do was kind of just prove the point raise a little bit of capital and do some deals and so be able to educate the market and say, that's what we meant. That's what we mean by a venture that can deliver a financial return alongside social and environmental impact. So that was, you know, conversations with some organizations and some other people in our our networks. And it was hard work. There wasn't a lot of um, traction, to be honest, um, to say, here's an opportunity. And at that point, as a completely new entity that Soul Capital was, you're kind of in this chicken and egg situation where you need to, you need the capital to be able to attract the investment opportunities, the ventures, but you also kind of need the ventures to be able to prove the point to the investors, say that's what we, the kind of thing we all invest in. So it was kind of a, a circular conversation for, and, and just market market validation really yeah. um, for a period of time there. And then um, I tipped in some money um, and an investor in Melbourne was inspired by what I was trying to do and tipped in um, some money. So then, then 
and then we're only talking hundreds of thousands of dollars at this point. So at least we could start doing some stuff. And then a few more investors um, came along, still crazy small fund. And then we did wrote some really small checks um, in the scheme of things. But the response was really validating in that these founders and entrepreneurs, like, well, finally, we've got someone who's kind of speaking our language and asking the right questions about the impact we're trying to have and how it aligns with our business model um, and so on. Because that is, you know, as an impact investor in an in early stage, or actually in any type of asset, this is what you need to dig into, right? You need to be convinced that the founders or the the lead team have a genuine understanding of the problem they're purporting to solve. And um, mm-hmm. you need to be convinced that the business model is going to deliver impact against that, um, that problem. And they should understand that ideally in a systemic kind of way. And then all the other things that um, any investor needs to see in, a, in an investment in an enterprise. Are there any, is it the same approach in terms of, you know, you hear, investors talk about investing in the people yeah um and and if so is there an investment that you could talk about where it stood out in any way so the first question yes particularly in early stage where so much about the enterprise is unproven um you're really primarily investing in the in the people and your belief in their ability to grow this thing um there needs to be a market as well you need to believe that there is actually a market that they're, they're going for but you need to, you're really backing the founders. Those are the horses that you're backing um, such that they will change the idea if they need to and, and respond. So it's it's all down to their ability, really. And that, that's the earlier the investment, the more that is true. And when it comes to impact, I think that's even more so because you really need to believe that their commitment to a, delivering that social and environmental impact is fundamental to what they're doing it's not just a veneer that they're wrapping around their business to attract your money it's a couple of examples just from that fund actually there's there's none of them that where this isn't true but i'll give you some some contrasting ones so ben gleisner of kogo um was conscious consumers at the time so i met ben when um back when i was um and we just set up with some other people an entity called social enterprise auckland and we did a big event and ben had just raised some money from friends and family um, in Wellington. He said, I need to come and speak at your thing. And I was like, okay, okay, Ben, come and speak at our thing then. And he told a story of raising that money. And it was like, that was a really cool story because this hadn't really been done much in New Zealand. And then um, I was able to, when he did his next round, um, which was the his first proper, proper quote unquote, raise from more sophisticated investors and, and angels and so on, um, was able to you know sign his term sheet and be the first money in. And so um, that was very validating. But with Ben is kind of the quintessential entrepreneur in many respects in that he's highly capable could, and has succeeded in multiple different um, aspects of his life and now is, um, is very kind of comes across as experienced, highly knowledgeable, very capable um, as a business leader. Yeah. Great. The, on con- contrast, another one which is some of the most inspiring humans I've ever met is Cara Technologies, which is, you know, they – and people can look at this on the website. So um, having um, artificial intelligence driven hyper real avatars to translate con- all content into like this podcast, for example, potentially into um, sign language um, in, in real time. Wonderful. So highly, again, highly capable people, but young, not as experienced, you know, different into the, the career spectrum than Ben in many respects, um, but highly capable with PhDs, et cetera. Um, and just the most genuine humans who are learning how to be founders and leaders, yeah. business leaders, whilst technologists 
but also just genuinely wonderful human beings. The, the kind of people who are saying, actually, you should just take any money I've got, you should have it because you're going to do amazing things with it. doesn't work like that, um, obviously. But yeah, <laughs> so um, I'm cherry picking and I, I feel bad because everyone in that portfolio is just most wonderful people. It's, um, if we don't have that connection, then it's really hard to justify investing. And so as an investor, do you guys go that step further, you know, beyond capital and, and uh, you touched on this before. So for, 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 you know, for the CARA, it was around helping them where maybe connect them to others who have experienced business people, or maybe it's another way you can help beyond mon- money. Yeah. And this is investment fund management in general with that. You know, after the transaction, you've got this portfolio of companies, then there's a investment management function that you that you continue delivering. So that is to support the portfolio for your investors and so on. And that can take many different forms from just general advice and support through to connecting, you know, opening up your networks and that kind of thing um, and, and various other things as well. And so for, as an example, someone like Ben didn't need a whole lot from us. They had a highly capable board and good people around them. Someone like um, the Cara Tech team, far younger, um, so we helped them with advisors and said this person should be on your team, and they said that's a really good idea. So that's um, that person's now their chief business officer, and now sit on their board, and so on and so on. So the the difference here, though, with impact investing is that you've got this other dimension that you need to support them on, which is making sure they're maximising their um, social and environmental impact, and but balancing that with their commercial imperatives as well. So it's yeah. um, and then you know also making sure that they're um, measuring and monitoring that so that they can enhance that impact and report to whomever they need to report to. I'm just strikes me that, you know, you're continuing to, to study, you, you, you're a lecturer, still very much part of the university. Does it feel really good to be, you know, entrepreneurial le- lecturer, but one who's actually, you know, put his money where his mouth is? Um, you've, you've taken risk, you've taken that, you're on that journey. Does that feel really good when you, you know, amongst colleagues maybe to, to feel like when you're doing, when you're doing that teaching, yeah. uh, it comes from a point of experience? It feels very hard, Mark, to be honest, because it's being an academic is a hard job to do at the, the best of times. Um, it's, you know, pretty challenging. If you need a PhD to even apply, you know, it's, it's not an easy job. So doing both simultaneously is, is very difficult. But yes, you're right. There are moments where it's very satisfying. And one of them, yes, is is the teaching. So I teach innovation, entrepreneurship, and a bit of strategy. And one of the things that would be entrepreneurs find really interesting, and or people they find difficult to access and very mysterious are investors, particularly venture capital investors. So having one as your lecturer, I think, is quite interesting, and the it has obvious impacts in terms of the stories you can tell and the way you can bring um, content alive. So yes, that's that, I guess that does feel good in, in the sense that. Um, we're not just talking about something from an abstract data-driven kind of perspective. You can do that plus bring it alive with the um, with the stories and, and help demystify this process because people are very put off by the idea of entrepreneurship. They think it's some entrepreneurs are some, because of the, the celebrity aspect of it, they think it's some magical mystery wizards who've got superpowers that they don't have, which is the, the opposite is true. So, yeah. so yes, there is that. And then from a research perspective, yeah, there's a natural innate understanding you have of the practice and of what you're trying to research. There's obviously help with accessing people in terms of data collection and that kind of thing. But yeah, you can use both, um, bring both worlds together to paint a, a, a deeper understanding of what that which we're trying to figure out. Which, by the way, the reason I do both is, one of the reasons I do both is, it's not just about going out and doing impact investing and social entrepreneurship and let's just do more, more, more. 
there's a bunch of knowledge we don't have that we need to have to change the way we do our economy, the way that we do policy and, and that kind of thing. And so the the research side of things is still, I think, a critical part of, of the movement. And you can see how that really adds value. And the future of, for Soul Capital and, and the future for yourself? It's getting a bit hectic with the with the two jobs, of course, and, and the point where I need to do to have the, the salary job to underpin the, the Soul Capital side of things is, is pretty much passed now. So it's really just the, the motivations of on the satisfaction I get from both worlds. But the fund that we've talked about, you know, that's um, fully deployed now and it's kind of uh, served its purpose. And um, from a sole capital perspective, albeit we're still supporting those enterprises to be um, as successful and as powerful as they can be. And so now we're on to our, our next fund, which is has Foundation North as its cornerstone limited partner. They're the, they're the, the, the first investor. And that is very exciting to have um, Foundation North in the impact investment game in New Zealand. So they're a large community trust, aren't they, with 1.3 billion funds under management or endowment, that sort of level? That's that sort of level, yes. So very um, so very large, but also very important is the way I would describe them, um, and very potentially powerful in the sense that community trusts, like we've seen with with some of the more private foundations in, in say, North America and across Europe, can use a full stack of capital to bear on their their purpose. And so we're managing um, their fund, and they've done something um, really admirable the way that they've designed it and, and making it an impact-first fund. So they're prioritizing the impact over the financial return, and they've wrapped their priorities and organization around the mandate of the fund. So that is, you know, prioritizing um, Tamaki and Taitokido, so Auckland and Northland as a geography. You know, good things tend not to just stay in one geography, of course, but that geography and prioritizing their, prioritizing their uh, impact themes of increased equity, increased um, social inclusion and um, regenerative environment, um, and their priority communities being Māori, Pacifica, uh, rainbow communities, whānau living with a disability, and ref- um, refugees and recent migrants, and trying to have um, increased equitable access to this type of capital for those priority communities. And so that's an example of, of their power, right? Because very few organisations can come to this space and say, you know, let's prioritise equitable access here. Not many investors have that mandate, let's say, and they are realising why they exist as an organisation, why they hold on to that $1.3 plus billion um, and how they can start deploying their investment capital, not just their grant capital to achieve the work. Because on an annual basis, their endowment you know, gives them close to, I think it's 40 to 50 million, which they invest in communities through philanthropy and, and giving. And this is, a, this is a move for them into something else. But it's at that end, we talked at the beginning, but it's more at the end of very much focused on the show, social impact and they could take a hit on the um, financial return. That's exactly right, where we need be. And a lot of people, when you say impact first, think, well, that means you do soft terms or lower rates of return and that kind of thing. But like I was saying before, um, not necessarily, except where that is necessary or appropriate to enable the impact to happen. What it does do is enables us to spend more time and money making sure that this capital is getting to where it needs to go. So we can call those the the quote-unquote transaction costs, i.e. to get into communities where you know, opportunities aren't just necessarily going to show up in your inbox or um, come knocking on your door. You need to go and uh, properly originate those um, investment opportunities to turn these projects into investable deals um, or to structure them with some instrument which protects the impact but also enables the, the venture to grow. 
um, or transitions ownership to, um, in our case, to say iwi Māori as a priority um, in, in many cases. And all these things are very difficult and time-consuming and require extra due diligence and so on. Um, and so this mandate allows us to really lean into that because that is what will actually um, make the fund different not just saying, well, we're, we want to invest just for these purposes. So, yeah, hats off to them because this hasn't been done before in New Zealand, yeah. uh, really um, going impact first like this. But it, And it also demonstrates the point I was making earlier that impact investing covers a real range of types and flavours of, of investment. And someone out there sitting and listening to this, they yeah, love entrepreneurialism, they would like to do something in that space, but actually they also want to make a difference to the world environment to society your story is a really good story because you actually wouldn't be partnering with foundation north they obviously have huge faith faith in you what you've achieved but if you hadn't have had that clear vision from the beginning and then proved the concept and been enduring what what would you say to people listening out there that uh have you know similar desire to to do what you've done maybe not investment but what would be your advice to them yeah but- Careful here, Mark, because I teach this, so I can start a lecture for an hour or two. The, <laughs> I guess if, if there's one thing is, one, don't think you can't do it because of what you think is re- the skills that are required or the, the attributes that are required and you don't have them, therefore you can't do it. You're never going to have the complete set of skills that you need to lead and grow your venture. No one ever does, but you need to start. First thing open to the idea of putting it out, saying to people that you want to be an entrepreneur, that you want to go and do this thing, which for, for many Kiwis is, is a challenge in itself to say, I want to go and do this thing, which is not just go and get a job. Once you do that and you're open to learning, you're hungry to learn, you're, you're listening to people's feedback, you will learn really, really quickly and you will figure stuff out as you go at the speed that you need to. Second thing is for people who think they do have all the skills and they are highly, super highly capable and that kind of thing, is be really conscious of what you're not strong at because whether you are in the first camp or the second camp, you're going to need people around you. Um, you're going to need to build a team and you should build a team that is complementary to your skills and abilities. So think about what you're not strong at and um, make sure you're solving for that as you um, find your co-founders and that kind of thing. But if there's a, a single thing, whether it is um, you want to start a, a not-for-profit NGO a a traditional commercial entity or something hybrid like um, social enterprise, social entrepreneurship um, and so on. First thing is, I think if you get started and you, you will learn in time as long as you are open to it and you put your hubris and your ego aside. Um, And if you are purpose driven and I get this, this question a lot and people who listen to your podcast would have heard from a lot of not-for-profit leaders and some social entrepreneurs and, and that kind of thing. I get a lot of questions around, oh, should I be a not-for-profit or should, be a, should I be a uh, limited liability company or what kind of, what do I do here? My advice is be agnostic about the form and choose the form over time that makes the most sense for the impact that you're trying to have. Don't make it a moralistic kind of thing. Make it about um, what is going to serve um, the impact you're trying to have. Great advice. Yeah. And the future for capitalism, future for business, and this idea that businesses just aren't about or not going to be about just delivering shareholder return. Yeah. And, you know, we've, we've got a B Corp movement, which is really gaining traction and actually imperative for a lot of customers. They will they'll choose Patagonia over, you know, another mountain weird designer because they, they know that they treat the staff well, the environment, all that sort of stuff. But what, 
do you feel like that is the, the direction purpose and profit are going to be the focus for almost all companies in the future? Yeah, I think that much um, we can be pretty confident about that. And this, this goes back to the point I was making earlier around the, you know, the logic that underpins um, these formal and informal institutions which structure our, our economy. But one of the things that has moved is that our expectations that we have of business. And even if it's only because as consumers, we demand businesses that are more conscious, more sustainable, more whatever, then that is shifting um, what's normal from a business perspective, let alone the power that we're starting to realize as um, with our pension funds and Kiwi savers and wanting to screen out things we don't agree with and um, where, our, where our money sits through you know responsible investment, ESG kind of stuff. So that I think is normal. What I'm seeing at the university and obviously as, a, as an investor is a generation of entrepreneurs that are kind of take all that for granted because they grew up with it. They grew up with corporate um, social responsibility as normal. And so the next thing for them is that doesn't require any any kind of convincing or inspiring is that they want to have their purpose aligned with where they put their energies. And employees are seeing this in terms of making sure they've got meaningful work and, and that kind of thing. But also from an entrepreneurial perspective, it's just a no-brainer for them that they're going to at the very least, have a business which is strongly sustainable, but um, increasingly um, is actually trying to solve a social and environmental problem quite directly. So from that perspective, yeah, I think we're pretty close to a, um, a new normal in terms of the public discourse. We've got some big challenges in terms of where we get our energy from and that kind of thing on a global scale. Um, these kinds of things which will take arguably too long without some pretty strong policy intervention. Um, but I think you've probably got others who will speak to the climate change challenge and in, in more depth so yeah so there's a it's funny i walk in two worlds in many respects some which with things like impact investing which is very um practical pragmatic responses to trying to have a more sustainable and inclusive form of capitalism and then some of my research particularly in my um maori and indigenous enterprise investment and economies kind of work where we're thinking about what a maori theory of value means it kind of takes you to a completely different form of capitalism or a different form of market-based economy, which yeah, is a whole different kind of paradigm, which is pretty challenging to to jump to that. So, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting stuff. Jamie Newth, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining me on Purposely. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. I hope you like what you're hearing because I sure do.